Hello and welcome to Asia In-Depth. I'm Michelle Florcruz. China's imposition of a new national security law for Hong Kong this summer has sparked fear that the territory's autonomy, guaranteed under the terms of the 1997 handover from British to Chinese rule, is under severe threat. But the move also raises questions about the trajectory of China itself. In this episode, we bring you a conversation about Hong Kong and China, with two of Asia Society's and the world's great experts on the subject. Kevin Rudd is president of the Asia Society Policy Institute and the former Prime Minister of Australia. Orville Schell is the Arthur Ross president of the Center on U.S.-China Relations. Their discussion was moderated by Susan Jakes, editor of Chinafile. Jakes begins the conversation. The idea for this podcast came out of a discussion that the two of you have been having around the post-COVID virtual water cooler of a now necessarily virtual Asia society over what has felt like an extremely long summer. And it's a conversation which began at the very end of June when China enacted a new law the law of the People's Republic of China on safeguarding national security in the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region. And as the ramifications of that law have become clearer, ramifications in the form of the law's enforcement in Hong Kong itself, in the form of the reaction of governments around the world, particularly in Washington, and in the form of individual decisions by businesses, civil society organizations, schools, universities, educators, scholars, and all kinds of other people whose work and personal lives bring them into contact with China. As this picture became clearer, both of you, in slightly different ways, expressed a sense that amid everything else happening in the world right now, it's quite a lot, Uh, The changes in Hong Kong over the summer merited particularly urgent attention and a pause to reflect on what has changed, what it means for China, and what it will mean for the world moving forward. Over the weekend, some 300 people were arrested in Hong Kong for gathering to protest the postponement of legislative elections and for uh, attempting to protest the national security law itself. So... I'd like to start by just giving each of you a chance to tell us what's been on your minds as you have watched the past two months unfold in Hong Kong and what kinds of questions it has raised for you as you have spent the summer talking to one another. And I think uh, we will begin with Kevin Rudd. Well, thank you, uh, Susie. And it's good to join Orville in this conversation. The truth is, most politics and international politics evolves, and usually evolves gradually. Um, And therefore, we're often left um, somewhat uh, confused about the nature of the events unfolding beneath our feet. We can point to many such gradual changes in politics and economics and even technology over time. But every now and then, there is a non-evolutionary change. and There is, for want of a better word, a revolutionary change. And I think what we have seen in Hong Kong in the events of the passage and enactment and enforcement of the national security law in Hong Kong, no ordinary evolutionary event in the history of Hong Kong. This is revolutionary in its nature and changes the face of Hong Kong potentially forever. 
those of us who have uh, spent time in Hong Kong over the decades, as uh, Susie, you have, and Orville has, and I have, and I've lived and worked there in times past, don't just have the classic expatriate affection for the place as uh, the expatriate window on China, though that is in part true. And particularly in times past, uh, and now very past, when Hong Kong was perhaps the only window on China. But for those of us with extensive um, uh, friendships and uh, social networks in Hong Kong, it's an affection for the entity itself, the society itself, and uh, its uh, rumbunctious uh, economic and social and uh, let's call it parapolitical life over a long period of time. Now, that has now achieved a great disjunction. Uh, and, and I think, therefore, when we look back on this, Susie, it's important to note and to mark the change, that there was a Hong Kong up to 1997. There was another Hong Kong between 1997 and uh, June of 2020. And now we're into the third phase of Hong Kong's history, and one which does not bode well. Orville, I want to let you just jump in. Do you, I, because my sense is that you um, see the relationship of what took place in Hong Kong to the larger political picture in China, maybe a, a little bit differently. Well, you know, Kevin um, has spoken, I think, aptly uh, of a disjuncture. I mean, you call it what you will, an inflection point, a tipping point moment. And I think for me, uh, what Hong Kong has meant has been that it is no longer really possible to think that um, in some way uh, uh, the People's Republic of China under Xi Jinping can tolerate, especially pieces of Chinese real estate, to remain in a state of play that isn't completely under the control of the party. And I think it also suggests that uh, in this era of wolf warriorism, that China, China's pretensions to control even reach beyond Hong Kong. And what I think has been so disturbing uh, at this, this juncture moment about what's happened is that it also is no longer possible to completely uh, ignore or hope that the different political systems and values that speak of each uh, of China and countries like Australia, the United States, Europe, or Japan, et cetera, that those can be glossed over, that we can carry on uh, trading and other forms of exchange, whether it's educational, cultural, business, uh, that it suggests maybe there is what I think uh, Mao Zedong would have called an antagonistic contradiction between the two. And that, for me, is a very lamentable conclusion. Because if one comes to that conclusion, one is left in a very different kind of field of, 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 of gravity in which we have to kind of re reassess and, and reformat the whole nature of our relationship with China. And I think it's that disturbing recognition that is throwing things into a double state of confusion. And we haven't quite come out the other side of it to know how it is that we'll deport ourselves to this country. If in fact, what has happened in Hong Kong is a, is a kind of a, a symbol of 
what we can expect to happen in other kinds of interactions between liberal democratic societies and, and Beijing. I want to ask both of you what you make of the timing of the law's introduction. I mean, m- many of the things that you just said, Orville, were true in uh, May of 2020 as well and in the early part of June. But why do you think Xi Jinping pushed this law into effect this summer? It was anticipated both inside and outside of Hong Kong over a long period of time. Uh, But the swiftness of its introduction and enactment came as a surprise to people the world over. So why did it happen this summer and why so fast? Um, You know, I think when the demonstrations uh, uh, were sort of hotted up, uh, China felt really uh, uh, humiliated by it, uh, disesteemed, and would have liked to have moved. And you recall they even mustered troops in Shenzhen, but they didn't come in to their credit. Uh, and I think they recognized that, that that kind of a resolution to the sorts of protests that they were encountering in Hong Kong would have been uh, really unsustainable and would have uh, uh, given them a, such a bad reputation that they would never get over it. And so they actually uh, arrived at a much more palatable and less uh, sort of, uh, 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 and somewhat more subtle, although it, it didn't seem so subtle at the time, uh, you know, way to deal with this. And that was to wait, uh, impose this law, which really gave them almost complete control over, over uh, the special um, uh, administrative region without sending troops in. So I think it was inevitable. Uh, Indeed, uh, perhaps we can get into this. I think it was inevitable from 1997 on. I just, I was pretty astounded it didn't happen earlier because I don't think the Chinese Communist Party has ever excelled at allowing some insubordinate part of its own sovereign territory to exist and have these sort of spastic reactions against the leadership. Uh, And uh, that it tolerated them for 23 years is pretty astounding. I think, um, Susie, when you try and understand the decision-making processes in Beijing on this, um, we are always peering through a glass dimly. But here are my sort of reflections from afar. Uh, You had the developments intrinsic to Hong Kong itself, then you had the dynamics of Chinese politics, and the third factor at play, of course, is uh, their perception uh, of uh, the dynamics of manageable or unmanageable American and international reaction to any fundamental crackdown in Hong Kong. These are all part of the admixture of Chinese decision-making processes. On the internalities of Hong Kong, uh, you're aware of uh, the very much the evolution of uh, events, uh, beginning from the um, uh, foolish decision by the Hong Kong government to try and bring about an extradition law, uh, giving rise to a massive popular reaction, uh, and a reaction which did in part uh, turn violent. Uh, and thereby creating uh, the uh, conditions precedent from Beijing's perspective to then act with its own form of national security law, its position being that the Hong Kong legislature had been endemically incapable of passing such a law itself. 
So those were very much the, as it were, the local factors. And if we point to a point of origin, it's the events of March of 2019 when uh, Carrie Lam regrettably came up with this proposal to bring about an extradition law. Then you've got the internalities of Chinese politics. And to uh, echo what uh, Orville said before, uh, the deep nature of the Chinese ideological system uh, ultimately is irrepressible in terms of its uh, appetite for authoritarianism. For those of us who are students of the Communist Party's history, uh, this has been uh, a continuum since 1921. Uh, the non-continuums have been those uh, episodic outbursts of plurality. Um, very short-term and 100 flowers movement of 57-58 before the crackdown of the anti-rightist movement. Um, and if you like, uh, the temporary flowering of uh, party uh, dissent and political dissent against the party during the 1980s, culminating in the crackdown of 1989. And there is something ultimately, therefore, about the Marxist-Leninist nature uh, of the party itself. And as Orville articulated before, it is uh, the uh, nature of the party's understanding of uh, contradictions, violent and non-violent, within the party's ideological, dare I use the term, superstructure, uh, which ultimately informs its decision to crack down when it sees these as being uh, violent contradictions against its form of political control uh, in the hands of the party, or as they would say it, in the hands of the dictatorship of the proletariat. So this is a very old, long-playing record, and we're now simply hearing the most recent track, and it does invite, as Orville indicated before, as China becomes more powerful in the world, the extent to which the intolerance of wolf warrior diplomacy uh, to other forms of dissent outside the Sinosphere uh, to China's notion of authority and control will give rise to a similar view of uh, intolerable contradictions from the party's point of view. And finally, the other dynamic, I think, at play in the Hong Kong decision and its timing was the ultimate view, uh, Susie, that uh, in uh, Beijing, their calculus was that the United States' reaction uh, would be all bark and no bite, and that whatever uh, punitive regime or sanctions regime was going to be implemented over Hong Kong uh, and the passage of the national security law, it would be of irritant value rather than a substantial hit on either the Chinese leadership, the Chinese economy, or even the uh, Hong Kong financial system. So put those things together, and I think that partly explains the timing. And do you think that, that, that they were accurate in that calculation from their own perspective? Uh, or do you think the, the um, countermeasures from, from the US and elsewhere in the world have uh, surprised them at all or upset that their uh, strategic calculus? Well, if you were sitting around the um, Politburo Standing Committee meeting, which took the decision, I presume, to um, uh, proceed with the national security law and put it rapidly through the National People's Congress Standing Committee and then have it um, uh, proclaimed and implemented within a week. Overnight. Yeah. Um, that um, the decision-making calculus would have been, the worst case scenario from China's perspective would have been 
for the United States to uh, decouple the Hong Kong dollar from the United States dollar uh, financial clearinghouse system. That would have undermined uh, Hong Kong as an international financial centre with fundamental implications uh, for the ability of Chinese state-owned corporations to continue to raise dollar-denominated uh, capital uh, in Hong Kong using it as the financial centre rather than Hong Kong or London, rather than New York or London. The fact that the United States uh, action fell many uh, leagues short of that and has produced, in fact, a limited list of sanctioned individuals um, and, and is yet to be a clarified set of sanctions against the uh, Hong Kong or international financial institutions servicing those individuals who were responsible for the ultimate decision. Uh, I think China, on a Richter scale of 1 to 10, 10 being a catastrophic reaction, 1 being a prick on the arm, this would have been seen as about 2 out of 10. That's my analysis. All may have a different take. You know, I, I think, Kevin, um, your assessment on the Richter scale of uh, disturbance for Beijing itself is probably right. However, when you couple Hong Kong with a whole series of other things that have been happening around the world uh, and the way in which they've sort of overplayed their hand, in my view, in myriad other countries, uh, then you get a very different perspective. I mean, when you look at what's happened in your own country in Australia, it's quite stunning that when Australia, China's Australia's biggest trading partner, that it could have risen up on its, on its uh, hind hooves and, and challenged China as it has. Uh, that would have been counterintuitive a couple of years ago, say three, four years ago. When you see what's happened to India, what's happened in Sweden, what is happening in Germany. You look at the Czech Republic, Norway, uh, Denmark, and uh, Canada. Uh, I mean, I often think, I mean, these are the former non-aligned sort of most vanilla countries of all in the world that uh, hardly ever spoke up on one side or other of an ideological debate. And here they are. I think by China's malfeasance of diplomacy, all in a very sort of agitated state about China. And we may find Germany following suit. So I, I think that you ha we have to look at Hong Kong in terms of its effect on the world for China within the context of this, this other form of diplomacy, which does not seem to have been incredibly successful. And I might add, you know, this is at a time when, with, uh, when Trump is laying waste to the American alliances and partnerships, when China should be running the board, but they're not. So I think that mosaic, if you put it together and Hong Kong sits right sort of at the center of it, then gives you a very different sort of complexion on whether China's going to come out of this, this uh, whole uh, dust up in Hong Kong uh, with it being something of an epiphenomenon. To add to uh, Orville's comments there, I mean, th it has been an uneven trajectory in terms of, let's call it the rest of the Asian and European democracies, a reaction to Chinese authoritarianism over, let's say, you know, the last decade or so to partly part company with um, Orville's observation about historically vanilla responses. 
uh, some of us were delivering lectures in Beijing about uh, human rights in Tibet when it was not fashionable to do so more than a decade ago, um, namely yours truly, uh, and issuing visas to Uyghur dissident leaders like Rabia Kadir to come to Australia, at which point uh, the Chinese system then crashed uh, through a cyber attack, the event that uh, she was to address uh, in Melbourne. Mm. Uh, and on top of that, I think, um, back in 2009-10, in the case of Australia issuing a defence white paper, well ahead of the curve, uh, proclaiming the um, unacceptable nature of China's uh, evolving military posture in the South China Sea, warranting a strategic response. And if you look at the other Asian democracies, the Republic of Korea, uh, and Japan in particular, and the Philippines under an earlier government, there have been uh, various sounding of the alarms over the, over, the, over the years. What's happened, however, with the Hong Kong factor, and going back to what Orville was saying before, is that it's become a catalytic event across the world, including, I think, uh, in Europe. And so, therefore, uh, the importance uh, lies in how now the rest of the world uh, goes forward, either under a Trump presidency or a Biden presidency, and whether the China once again will succeed in its historical strategy of dividing and conquering countries uh, on the lure of the economic relationship against standing up for the universal values for which democracies both uh, in the Orient and the Occident uh, are now united. I want to circle back in a minute to the world's response, but I think um, it might be interesting to talk about the piece of the dynamic that you were both describing of, um, I think, Orville, you called it overreach, that resides within the law itself. You, you've both uh, already mentioned you know, the, the, that the law is staggeringly sweeping in its scope. Its definition of national security is highly elastic. Uh, it construes uh, threats to safety very broadly. And it, it has very much the flavor of the mainland criminal code on what are often described as your pocket crimes, you know, crimes like gathering a crowd to disturb social order, which are uh, called pocket crimes because almost any behavior that the state deems objectionable can be conveniently uh, stuffed into them. Uh, and they give law enforcement authorities such wide uh, latitude and discretion. But the Hong Kong law is actually an upgrade on those kinds of laws in that it asserts that its provisions and penalties apply to anyone anywhere in the world. And, uh, and of course, this is the Article 38 of the law, which applies, it, it extends its jurisdiction to the entire world. So I, I wonder what you make of the reasoning behind that very grand reach and um, what kind of impact you expect it to have in, in practice outside of Hong Kong. And then if we want to get back more into the, the um, policy responses, um, do you see areas in which um, uh, other countries can push back slightly uh, on, its, uh, on its impact? I think when you look at the objective um, provisions of the um, Hong Kong national security law and the four criminalizations, the four categories of criminalization uh, that are contained within the law, uh, even the United Nations Human Rights Council has come out and been quite explicit in its critique 
about the uh, use of the um, vague language uh, contained uh, in the uh, legal prescription. Um, and so, therefore, its ability to yield uh, a flexible instrument on the part of the enforcement agencies within Hong Kong, uh, let alone the parallel enforcement agencies directly controlled by Beijing, both in Hong Kong uh, and on the mainland, uh, then uh, I think as a piece of uh, legal drafting, this is uh, a blunter instrument uh, than would normally be expected. I think the second point is this, on extraterritoriality, for me, this is the most remarkable provision of it. Uh, at one level, um, the direct importation into Hong Kong of the PRC Domestic Criminal Code, uh, which is where these four criminalizations concerning sedition and the rest come from, um, yes, uh, if you like, uh, that could have been expected. But the extraterritorial provision, extraterritorial provision uh, is um, right out there. I expect that the motivation behind it, in what I expect it was also a hurried piece of drafting, given the speed of the turnaround of the process in Beijing, um, was to send a warning shot to the Chinese diaspora abroad. I know the extraterritorial uh, provisions do not just apply to Chinese diaspora, uh, by which I mean PRC citizens abroad, uh, or Hua Chao, uh, overseas Chinese who have foreign citizenship abroad. They apply to everybody. But I presume the warning shot uh, is that everyone is potentially within reach, which means, of course, at an operationalization level, uh, that um, you know, if Orville Shell and Kevin Rudd uh, utter a seditious remark uh, in an interview with, for example, Susie Jakes um, uh, at an institution called, for example, the Asia Society, um, then uh, what happens to uh, Orville and Kevin and Susie uh, if and when they next visit Beijing, or for that matter, Hong Kong? Open question. And before I forget it, though, Susie, in terms of um, the operation, operationalization of this law, the primary burden is being felt by uh, the good citizens of Hong Kong. My appeal to the Chinese government and party would be uh, whatever warning shots you believe you've now fired against the likes of Jimmy Lai um, and others in Hong Kong, um, then leave them as warning shots. If you proceed with hardline prosecution and incarceration, or worse, you go to the point of uh, arresting, uh, trying and incarcerating the likes of Joshua Wong, then the so-called uh, two out of 10 Richter scale international responses uh, to what China has done so far is likely to escalate rapidly. And so I think wiser heads in Beijing would be well advised to think ahead in terms of where all this could go. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question, Kevin. Will wiser heads prevail? And do they have that ability now, what we used to sort of describe as sort of flexible authoritarianism, to sort of, uh, you know, pull the throttle back a bit? But I think what the... It depends on what the end game is, right? I mean, whether this yeah. is an attempt to make Hong Kong uh, more quiescent, less... less um, dangerous for Xi, if it even was, or, or something much more uh, either ambitious or paranoid. And it also depends on Beijing's assessment of the American decline. If they really believe that, then 
they can leave the throttle forward. But um, I, I think what it suggests to me, this extraterritorial uh, piece of the national security law, which is so bizarre, uh, because I mean, by any kind of law whatsoever to extend the, the ability of one state to, to make people in another state culpable just because of what they might say, uh, just uh, it is sort of staggering. But what it does suggest is how important it is to Beijing to control the narrative. You know, they, they speak of, you know, Jiang Hao, Zhong the Gushu, to tell the China story better. And you might laugh and smile at that and say, oh, well, that's a quaint notion. But actually, I think it's an extremely important notion uh, to the party uh, because it is a, an apparatus that lives and breathes control. And when it was only trying to sort of, uh, uh, you know, incubate its own revolution, all right, what the rest of the world did didn't matter. But now with the Belt and Road being such a seminal player in the global marketplace, it really does, I think, take offense when other societies, newspapers, the media, whoever, speak out in a denigrating way. In a, in a way that disesteems China. And here, I think we don't need to get into it, but the, the whole value of being esteemed and respected, of course, has deep historical roots and plays into the whole uh, sort of Marxist, Leninist, anti-imperialist, big power narrative of China always having been preyed upon, beset upon and humiliated. And now it doesn't have to do that anymore. So why shouldn't it? control not only what happens in China and Hong Kong, but uh, why shouldn't it reach out and try to control what happens in Belt and Road member countries and everywhere else for that matter, if in fact it is going to be a great power? Richard Haas, uh, president of the Council on Foreign Relations, wrote, I think it was last week, that the U.S. Uh, ought to change its longstanding policy of strategic ambiguity on Taiwan, in part as a result of the swiftness of Hong Kong's loss of autonomy. I'm interested to hear uh, both what you think about the advisability of such a change and the case that uh, Haas makes for it, but also, uh, more broadly, how do you gauge the impact of uh, everything that you just described so beautifully, Orville, and what has befallen Hong Kong on the future of Taiwan? I mean, from any sort of international standard of, uh, you know, uh, Taiwan should be able to declare itself independent if it wants to. The Czechoslovakia split in two peacefully. Uh, Quebec regularly has elections, it's whether it wants to leave federal Canada. Scotland has elections to see if it wants to leave Great Britain. Uh, Self-determination is a vaunted principle of the United Nations and of modern uh, diplomatic life, but China doesn't accept it. So even though it has a sort of an inescapable logic, the illogic of, of Haas's argument is that it would so... Uh, exacerbate the tensions in the Taiwan Straits and possibly precipitate a, a military response from Beijing, that it would be very, very disruptive. So somewhere between those two sort of analytical frameworks, uh, I think we have to kind of recognize reality lies. And I think Tsai Ing-wen, 
the president of, of Taiwan does recognize that and has done a pretty good job. So the challenge for me is to see if the United States and other countries can find ways to dignify China, uh, Taiwan, to upgrade the relationship without throw, throwing the whole train off the tracks and precipitating a crisis, which we would rue as soon as it began. And does Hong yeah. Kong make that harder to do, Kevin? From Beijing's perspective, um, these um, three boxes are seen both separately, but uh, are also seen as related. The three boxes, I mean, is Hong Kong, Taiwan, and the South China Sea. Hong Kong, as we all know, since 97, has been in the sovereignty box. Um, Taiwan um, is not in the sovereignty box. Uh, and from Beijing's perspective, uh, the South China Sea is increasingly uh, being dragged into the Chinese sovereignty box. What I think our friends in Beijing don't understand, however, is that when you overreach in Hong Kong, is that what it does is fundamentally uh, impact the um, political uh, decision-making processes in the United States and its allies vis-a-vis -vis, uh, China's posture in the South China Sea and over, over Taiwan. I think on the question of Taiwan itself, uh, two things are worth bearing in mind. Uh, one is the Chinese raw power calculus uh, during the 2020s, which for those of us who follow the literature in Beijing, notice an increasing shift in China's language and level of, as it were, military and economic confidence about its ability to move uh, on Taiwan uh, as the decade progresses, perhaps towards the end of the decade. And of course, this dovetails with Chinese political timetables. If Xi Jinping secures his uh, reappointment as General Secretary, President and Chairman of the Military Commission at uh, the 20th Party of Congress in 2022, then uh, that's unlikely to be for a single term. I think it would be for the duration, which takes us then, barring an act of God, uh, into the uh, 2030s. So therefore, it's a combination of Xi Jinping's uh, sense of uh, his own national mission, plus a change in what the old Soviets would call the correlation of forces in the Taiwan Straits, both against the Taiwanese armed forces and against uh, their would-be American ally in the event of any showdown. Uh, all that coming together. So therefore, uh, going to uh, the American posture on it, uh, I would think that an incoming uh, Biden administration, perhaps a continuing Trump administration, is likely to see its uh, national interests as lying in radically increasing Taiwan's ability to uh, defend itself, by which I mean enhance its own national deterrent against cyber attack, against um, naval blockade and against other Taiwan-related contingencies. Because where Orville correctly pointed to the danger zone before, is if you have a 360 degree, or shall I say 180 degree shift in US uh, declaratory strategy in Hong Kong, you will th be thrown uh, on Taiwan, you'll be thrown immediately uh, into a crisis. And here's the crunch point. Let's just say there was uh, such a um, declaratory shift uh, in the United States. Let's just say 
Xi Jinping then sought to preempt a further consolidation of the military relationship between Taiwan and the United States. And let's just say push came to shove and you had any range of scenarios unfold as Chinese armed force action was taken uh, against Taiwan in one form or another. And the United States at that point did not effectively respond. Under those circumstances, American power in the eyes of Beijing, Taipei, and its allies in Asia would then evaporate in perceptions, in strategic perceptions. And that is why bringing this to the immediate boil, if that's what uh, Richard Haas is suggesting uh, or implying, uh, is a particularly dangerous course, which is why I think a continuing Trump administration or incoming Biden administration may look at other means to change Taiwan's international personality within the framework of the original um, uh, three communiques between Beijing and Washington, plus under the Taiwan Relations Act, uh, enhance uh, Taiwan's independent military deterrent capabilities. And returning to Hong Kong itself, Jimmy Lai, who was interviewed a few days ago after being released from uh, having been arrested, said essentially uh, the national security law is the death knell for Hong Kong. Hong Kong is finished. Um, How do the two of you view the possibilities for um, policies uh, in the US, in Australia, in other uh, countries with an interest in um, preserving um, some of the things that made Hong Kong uh, such an unusual part of China and and made it a place where um, its colonial legacy aside, uh, people who were not Chinese could uh, could belong to China in a sense. Is, is there a way that you could foresee any of that continuing to exist or, or is, this, is this over? Is this a, a, a done deal? Well, whatever you know, Hong Kong's fate is as it evolves over the next year or so, I think what's incontrovertibly true is that it was a, the, sort of the last remaining symbol uh, of a place in between, uh, a place where, uh, you know, both Chinese and people outside could freely mix. And I mean, it was a sort of a, a, a tiny little nexus point between China and the outside world where everybody could feel comfortable. With that gone, and I think it is gone, uh, then it seems to me in a very metaphoric way, we come almost inevitably uh, to the process by which the oil and water separates and decoupling advances. China will still remain a big uh, trade power, but I think just as we have followed the, 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 the odyssey of Huawei, I think that too is sort of the prow of the ship, and we will see more and more uh, industries following its path. They'll, they'll be forced to make a decision. Uh, you know, when you talk to Koreans, even today, they're still very reluctant. And for obvious reasons, they, they, they want to sort of stay in the middle. And, 
classically, the United States has not wanted to make countries choose. But I think regardless of what the United States does, what Hong Kong tells us is if things continue along this track, it will be inevitable that more and more companies, more and more countries, uh, you know, more and more NGOs are going to have to make a choice. And that's going to be very unsettling, but it seems almost inevitable now. And I think Hong Kong sort of rings the knell on the idea that the twain can somehow continue to meet in a way that's not antagonistic. I think um, uh, the die is cast on Hong Kong. And the only uh, variable for the future, uh, Susie, in my judgment, is uh, the internal fault lines of Chinese domestic politics. Um, will Xi Jinping inevitably be reappointed in 2022? Um, there's an open uh, debate about that. Um, the uh, level of resistance uh, to Xi Jinping's form of leadership in the party uh, is, uh, in my judgment, increasing. Um, what's our external evidence for that? Um, you don't launch a full-blown party rectification campaign if you think that everything is just tickety-boo within the party and there's not a problem. And so um, uh, that factor will play out between now and uh, the 20th Party Congress. Uh, if Xi Jinping continues in office, which on the balance of probabilities is likely to be the case, um, then uh, the doubling down against any expression of dissent in Hong Kong is likely to continue, uh, reinforced by uh, the nature of the US and Western response. Um, and on top of that, uh, if uh, Xi Jinping judges that China simply becomes too big an economy to be any longer troubled by the financial pinprick from Hong Kong. So I think uh, that's what happens under a Xi Jinping reappoint. Uh, if there is a non-Xi Jinping leadership, uh, it may well be um, somewhat more calibrated in the future. Hard to predict. I don't think any replacement leader in the dynamics of the internal dynamics of the Chinese Communist Party could afford to be seen as a repealing the Hong Kong national security law uh, through the National People's Congress in the absence of regime change itself in Beijing. Um, and even then it would be an open question um, given the particular place which Hong Kong occupies in China's own historiography uh, and the history of the treaty ports and everything else. So I think um, under a non-Xi Jinping leadership, perhaps a more calibrated uh, response. But I think the last thing to say on this would be, if there is a radical acceleration in, let's call it, uh, repressive tactics against the voices of the Hong Kong democracy movement and the arrest of Joshua Wong and the uh, incarceration of Joshua Wong and the others for a long period of time, and if there is a large-scale uprising in Hong Kong, and if we see... Uh, a Hong Kong form of Tiananmen in one form or another with uh, violent repression, then I think uh, all bets are off in terms of what the US and the West uh, and the other democracies of Asia may then do. 
which is why this is a very difficult and dangerous game for Beijing. It's not all simply sliding in Beijing's favour here. They need to be very careful about the period ahead. And, I, you know, I would say, Kevin, that even if Hong Kong kind of quiets down and even if in 2022 there were, perchance, a new leader, uh, you know, we still have the question of Taiwan, which could be the new Hong Kong. So it, it, it's really hard to know uh, how they're going to escape this trap that they've laid for themselves, which is this kind of rigid notion of sovereign redemption. Uh, and finally, I would simply say this, the thing that really astounds me about what has been happening in Hong Kong and what I think will probably happen in, in Taiwan, which is a much more fraught situation, is that, you know, it isn't really from any logical perspective in China's national interest to do this. Uh, China had a really good thing going. It was this miraculous economic developer that had enjoyed the China boom. It had, by and large, until a few years ago, you know, put people somewhat, made them, you know, somewhat relaxed about the rise of this authoritarian country. And I find it quite bewildering that they've done so many things that have thrown them off a, a, a pathway, which was pretty successful. And above all, it had neutralized the United States so that it wasn't in, in its way. In fact, it was helping China. So it's the national interest question, I think, could come back historically to make Xi Jinping look incredibly excessive and blind in his, his policies. I suppose that's why, Orville, I'm arguing that in 2022, at the 20th Party Congress, given the constituencies in the Chinese Communist Party, which think along the terms you've just described, which is that um, we didn't have such a bad thing going, but why have we overreached uh, on Hong Kong? Why have we overreached on the South China Sea with island reclamation, thereby uh, bringing on a premature American reaction, the hardening of collective Western positions? Why are we overreaching on Taiwan by accelerating the timetable for reunification? Uh, why are we uh, now doubling down again uh, in uh, Senkoku Diaoyuda in the East China Sea against Japan? And, uh, and why are we uh, having uh, border wars simultaneously with the Indians? And why uh, do we now face the phenomenon of uh, the president of the Czech Senate uh, on his way to or having visited uh, uh, Taiwan as there's been some overreach in China's demands of uh, even European governments in being, as it were, uh, more Catholic than the Pope in adhering to China's dictates on the, the one China policy. Now, these factors, together with um, others to do with the economy and the, ch and the evolution, uh, and some would say regression of the Chinese economic model in the last several years, provide deep uh, fuel for internal debate in the period between now and 2022, which is why I expect we now have a party rectification movement, because these debates are getting very sharp, very, very sharp indeed. And I think uh, as a final reflection on Hong Kong itself and, and, and why this has happened, when we pose the question, uh, Orville, it does not seem to be in China's uh, national interests. 
then the, the best organizing principle I've always found in trying to understand any particular Chinese external policy behaviors um, are usually the internal dynamics of the Chinese Communist Party itself. And the central organizing principle being uh, preserving the current leadership and preserving the party in power and the judgments it makes, therefore, and to return to our earlier part of the conversation, uh, about uh, deep Marxist-Leninist assessments about what's necessary to continue the party in power long-term, and Xi Jinping along with it. You know, I think you're absolutely right, Kevin. I think, you know, we, 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 any schoolboy knows that everything is done for a reason, even if we can't discern what the reason is. So if we don't see the logic of what China is doing in its foreign policy expressions and how that plays out abroad, then we do have to look for it uh, within China, which is, of course, looking through the glass darkly as you began your comments. We, we, may, we don't understand that very well, but we, we, we must acknowledge that there is a reason. And if it isn't outer, it must be inner. And that does suggest things which uh, are very difficult to plumb for us sitting outside China. It's even difficult for Chinese sitting inside China to plumb because these things are kept very close to the chest of the leadership. You see, all it may well have been that in the crackdown that we've seen both in Hong Kong, but also the hardening of China's posture in the last uh, six months, at least until recent speeches by Wang Yi and Yang Jiechi and other reach outs by Chinese, senior Chinese diplomats in the last several weeks, that in fact this big hardline response was in fact um, from a central leadership acutely conscious of its own vulnerabilities in the COVID world. That is, the challenges to its own authority which are, began to erupt over the initial mismanagement of COVID-19 within China plus the external and critique of China as being, uh, as being the origin of the virus and then its transmission to the rest of the world. Uh, that in fact, uh, as you know from your own uh, scholarship and deep experience, um, that under these circumstances, uh, a Leninist party's response is usually not a, uh, shall we say, uh, nuanced granular one. It's usually hard line reassertion and assertion of power and control. And so as we look to find a, an organizing principle or a rationale or a reason as to why these things have happened, if they escape what the rest of us would conclude as being in the long-term national interests of uh, China and even a China under the Chinese Communist Party, and perhaps these lie in these internal explanations which you and I have just been talking about. Thank you for listening to Asia In Depth. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, and check out past episodes by visiting our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast. I'm Michelle Flor Cruz. See you next time.